I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we It's out! The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga is now available everywhere books are sold. This is the book for every yoga teacher, studio, and practitioner who wants to incorporate an inclusive practice to yoga. It's available on my website, laraland.us, and everywhere books are sold. If you're loving this podcast, you are going to love this book. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. I'm really excited to be back and talking to you all today. I had taken a little break of recording episodes, even though you've been getting them at a normal cadence, because I do so many in advance, to tour my new book, The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga, and I've been meeting people from all over and doing workshops and going to bookstores, and it's been incredible. So Thank you if you are one of those people who came out. Thank you if you're coming out in the future or any way that you're interacting with this work. And actually, that is why I wanted to talk to you today about this episode. It has to do with an upcoming workshop that I am doing at Kripalu. Kripalu Yoga Center, one of the most renowned yoga retreat centers, a very special place. And I'm hoping this workshop This weekend workshop, June 30th to July 2nd, will sell out. And a lot of what I'll be focusing on at this workshop is secondary trauma. So the trauma that we get from constantly being bombarded 24-7 news cycle, social media, news in our hand, on our device, violence, and We might just be flipping, looking for a happy uh, dog, cat photo, and shock of violence. I know sometimes there are warnings, but of course we can't look away, just like when we see a crash. There's so many secondary vicarious traumas that can happen to someone in life, from hearing about someone going through something, to of course our first responders. And I really want to tackle this issue through embodied practice through yoga and somatic work, and that's what we'll be doing at Kripalu. So we all have secondary trauma, is my opinion, especially if you're in the helper professions, healing professions, therapy, nursing, if you're a yoga teacher. In all our ways, like I said, we are healing folks in our interactions, right? Either healing or harming. So if you want to be on the healing side and not burn out, you know, you start to get bitter. This has been a really important concept of mine since early days in my teaching is that when people give from a service point of view, which is from burnout and they start to feel resentful, it recreates traumas, power dynamics, and harms. So this workshop, again, at Kripalu, which you can register for off my site, this is going to address all of that in a very peaceful environment, doing embodied practice, doing group work. 
I really hope you'll be there. Also, shortly after that, I'll be at the Catskill Mountain Yoga Festival, and I will also be leading a retreat up here in the Catskill Mountains in Roxbury, a three-day trauma-informed yoga training and retreat. You can also canoe while you're up here. It is gorgeous. Just don't wait to the last minute. Get enrolled. So that leads me to my guest today. My guest today is Dr. Trudy Gilbert Elliott, and I brought her on because she wrote the book on secondary trauma, and I'm going to ask her a lot about that today. But she is so much more than that. She has so much experience. I'm going to try to boil it down for you. It's pretty um, intensive. She is a consultant and mental health practitioner in Las Vegas, Nevada. She was born into the military Navy and has been educated primarily in California, where she has an Associates of Art from Santa Rosa Junior College, a Bachelor's of Arts from California State University, Sonoma, and a Master's of Science from California State University. After serving the required internships, she became a licensed marriage and family therapist, as well as a licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor. She also obtained a PhD in general psychology from Capella University in Minnesota. Um, In her career, she's worked in many settings with the military, especially. She's worked with women who have served, who've been raped, molested, or domestically battered. She's worked at a, a psychiatric hospital for that. She's worked on drug and alcohol detox for children and adolescents. She's worked in jail with inmates charged with domestic battery at boys' homes, outpatient clinics. She's worked with first responders and their families. And that's where her book, Healing Secondary Trauma, comes in, which was released in May 2020. And that is going to be the focus of our conversation today. So I'm going to ask her about what is secondary trauma? How can we protect ourselves against it? How do we know if we have it? What are the signs? And what do we do then? There are so many different therapeutic models, and she knows a lot of them. And as I'm studying them myself, uh, which many of you know, I'm going to ask her about some of the subtle differences between these models. So this is going to be a great episode for each and every one of you. I hope you enjoy. And please, if you do, write a review Rate it five stars, but also take a moment if you can to write that written review. It really helps us get seen. All right, here we go. Yeah, there we go. Hello, Dr. Trudy Gilbert Elliott. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. As I was, you know, just telling you privately, this is one of the cases where I really reached out to someone who doesn't know me because I've been very interested about a particular kind of trauma. And I wanted to find the right person that could speak to that. And that is vicarious or secondary trauma. So as I started to do my research, your name popped up. Yeah, this has been a odd labor of love for me. I worked in trauma the entirety of my career. But the most recent work I've been doing um, for the last, especially probably 10, 15 years has been mostly secondary trauma. Can you explain what that is and why that's become such an interest to you? When you have secondary trauma, you can be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. It's just that it starts in a different way. You know, most of the time when we think about people having PTS, we usually think about it like from somebody who got in a really severe car accident or someone who was let's say, raped or someone who was held at gunpoint and robbed or something like that. And then we think, okay, that makes an awful lot of sense that that person would end up with post-traumatic stress. But in the 
last writing of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Diagnosing Disorders is they did add some different language into the diagnosis for post-traumatic stress that incorporates a different type of onset, I guess you could say, and that has to do with exposure to someone else's trauma. What that looks like is, let's say you have a family member who was that person who was held at gunpoint and went through that. And as a family, you know, you're hanging out and and that person is repeating and repeating and repeating that story. Mm. And in particular, the reason why it ends up affecting other brains is usually when you're repeating a story like that, there's going to be a lot of emotion embedded in it. So you're going to be talking about it. You may break down as you're sharing the story of your own trauma, and that is going to affect other people. And what happens with brains, obviously, is you know, like we'll hear a story and we sort of uh, create a little video in our own head Mm. about what that person just shared. And then we elaborate on it and add to it and create more of it. So my own specialty currently is I only work with first responders. And so a vast majority of their trauma is secondary because they're coming up to a scene where, let's say, someone was injured and then they are describing why they were injured and what happened to them. They are um, responding like police officers responding to domestic battery situations where they're hearing the victim share the story of what happened to them over and over and over. So that's the difference. That's the main difference. It's that in a sense, it's that one step away. That's why even interestingly enough, years ago, and it was interesting that now all of the research really supports what I always knew, is I would not let people, when I did groups early in my career, I wouldn't let people share the details of their trauma in my groups. Mm. I would have them share how it felt to be them or how it, like what they were working on or what they noticed, let's say, about their triggers, things like that. But the actual narrative of their trauma, I did not let them share to the group because what you're doing is you're putting every other brain in that group in horribly vulnerable positions. So you want to be very, very careful. And certainly we want to be there for our family members, but it is a dilemma Mm. because we are going to be very vulnerable. And just like any other type of thing, if we are going to have that exposure, we would need to be doing some things to make our brains more resilient and to be a lot more careful about that as well. Oh yeah. We're going to get into that. What you just shared there was so much good stuff there. It made me think of a lot of different things. I mean, one of the things about the group work, the last thing you said, so important. A lot of, I train yoga teachers in trauma sensitivity and a lot of them have this question because they want to do a kind of check-in, you know, at the end of class. And sometimes, as I'm sure you're aware because they're trauma survivors in the room and there's not a strong sense of like, what's too much to share, those shares can get traumatizing for other people in the room. And so we've been talking a lot about how to open up for sharing without leading to what could be potential triggers for other people. So you you present a really good answer to that of speaking about the feelings, but not necessarily the details of the event. Right. So yeah, Yeah. so it's more about sharing in a general way. And you can come up with a lot of different metaphors for checking in things like if you were a car, what kind of car would you be today? Or like if you were a a tree, I mean, we can do a lot of different things that we can or weather and like Mm -hmm. we can use a metaphor of weather. And then certainly 
being able to talk about it more from the standpoint of what are my current symptoms? What do I notice my body is doing? What do I notice my mind is doing? I don't have to give lots of details about the actual content of the trauma, yeah. but I can get a lot of help by being able to share those ex emotional and just physical experiences I'm having living in a body that has been traumatized. Yeah. And sometimes that's the most important stuff to talk about are the, the present sensations. So I think yes. that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. I'm, I'm remembering talking about this made me remember just a few years ago, there was a very violent crime murder across the street from where I used to live. And someone that I kind of peripherally knew was the perpetrator and the victim. And hearing about it a lot and reading about it a lot, I did start to like imagine it in my mind. I can relate to what you're saying about we create this picture like a movie and then mm -hmm. we start to, we could potentially start to like ruminate on that picture. Yes. And that's actually what happens a lot with primary trauma versus secondary trauma. It's the same sort of thing. It's, there's some ruminative elements about both of them. Like if it's your own traumatic experience, you are replaying that tape over and over and over. And if it's secondary, you're creating more and more and more depth and detail about the tape you came up with in your own mind. Yeah. So you, you mentioned first responders. I'm wondering if you might have some knowledge about how this is playing out also for therapists, psychologists. Yeah, it actually has the same elements. It's really with people in my field, and actually that's why I became really interested in this topic as I had my own experience with secondary trauma, probably would have been about 12, 13 years ago. I was working for the military at the time and I did a critical response to a mass shooting. And um, so I was working with all of the people who had been impacted by this mass shooting. And then I think it was 10 days later, there was a plane crash. And oh. so then I was responding to all of the first responders who had ended up going into that scene and did body retrieval, things like that. And so I was dealing with both of those groups simultaneously. Um, the demand was too much for one person, first of all, but nevertheless, I ended up having my own experience with secondary trauma as a result of absorbing all of those stories. And I just got really curious, like what is, after I sort of came out of the abyss, if you will, I wanted to know what this was called and I wanted to understand it. And I wanted to be able to help other people understand it. And that's when I started doing the deep dive. I started doing workshops on the topic and uh, talking to my colleagues about it and what they could do to make themselves more resilient, but also what to do to open up the dialogue with each other. If you're in a field where you're being exposed to trauma, your odds go up astronomically because it's just like any other thing. I mean, you're, you're in a field where you're working using your body a lot. Our bodies need recovery. Every system in our body needs recovery. So if, if I'm taxing myself physically, I need physical recovery. If I'm taxing myself mentally, I need mental recovery. If I'm taxing myself emotionally, I need emotional recovery. And what will happen with first responders and people who do what I do, especially those of us who are trauma specialists, we are taking blows, if you will, to our brains over and over and over and over. And we aren't getting the big spaces between that would be ideal to recover our brains after we've had these experiences. And that's what happens with firefighters, with law enforcement, with EMTs, even with like ER doctors and nurses. I talk to them sometimes and it, 
they're usually very confused. Like, why all of a sudden? Like, why is this happening now? This doesn't make any sense. I've been fine up to this point. Mm -hmm. But it's just like that, I don't know, runner's knee. (laughs) You, You know, how many miles does that knee have in it before it finally says, like, I don't want to run anymore. And that's what happens with the brain is, yeah, I can do really well for perhaps my whole career if I'm if I've got a really great brain and it, it works out well for me. But for other people, it's like all of a sudden there's this little shift in their functioning level and they're becoming more progressively more and more vulnerable. And yet they're still doing the work. And so now every single one of those hits is getting under their skin, if you will. It's beginning to be noticeable that their behaviors are shifting, their attitudes are shifting, is happening so slowly. It's just a very, very, very slow process. So a lot of times people don't notice that at some point they cross this invisible line and now they're not doing well. Yeah. But they may not notice. Other people may notice, but they don't always notice. Yeah. I'm hoping you'll share some of those signs for us. I'm thinking about so many things again. I'm just thinking about people that go into helping professions. We tend to have, you know, we want to help. <laughs> and this very positive quality can also have a negative aspect to it where, you know, if we overstrive, if we want healing or fixing of others, um, and we come at it from that place, I'm, I'm curious if you agree with this, that... Is there something about knowing that there's a limit to what I can do for another and that ultimately they are in charge of their healing? Is there a boundary there that helps us to prevent against the taking on that trauma? Yeah, I had a great supervisor early in my career and she always used to say, don't ever work harder than your patient. Yeah. And I think that's really true in pretty much everything. I mean, it's about learning in our life how to pace better, pace better within ourselves and pace better with other people. And and like I was saying earlier, it's really about understanding and checking in with ourselves and knowing what kind of recovery we need. And when we are wanting something so much more than someone else wants it for themselves, And I mean, and while that's a beautiful quality, we can end up just really flushing so much of our own energy down the toilet because it goes nowhere. The other person isn't utilizing that energy. The other person doesn't really, isn't ready to receive that energy. And so we end up having to learn that. And I think it's about self-awareness, but it's also about patience with ourselves and with others because there, there aren't always times when... I've done lots and lots and lots of different things in my career. And uh, I can remember having an epiphany at one point that um, that I think there are times when we, we honor ourselves by saying something, we honor ourselves by sharing something or doing something with another person, but we may not be the one that gets through to that person. I think mm. we all want to be whatever, maybe it takes, I don't know, 11 people to say something to somebody or 23 people. And we always want to be the 23rd person, but but that doesn't mean that the third person or the seventh person isn't as important as the 23rd person. And so I think we we want to be able to say say what we need to say. We want to be able to say it well, but then we need to just let it go and allow that person to be wherever they need to be in their journey. Because their journey, we don't know everything that happened before and we don't know what it's going to take. Certainly, again, we're going to honor ourselves. We're going to say it well, 
And then we need to let it go. We need to learn that again and again and again. We need to let go a lot of stuff in our own life too, but but we certainly need to let go trying to control somebody else's desire to be healthier or happier or whatever. Oh, I love this. I, everything you just said. Um, I've heard something like that before about, you know, you don't know where you are on someone's journey. And I definitely know that there are many things in my life that I've had to hear a few times <laughs> before they, oh, yeah. you know, before they settled in. And then I remember back, you know, oh, that person back then did say that to me. <laughs> so it's such a valid point. And then checking ourselves. I mean, a lot of what you're saying feels like a lot of the tradition I come out of, you know, it's, it's a yogic tradition that we say, you know, that we're not really responsible. We're responsible for our actions, you know, but um, ultimately we don't really know what will happen. It's also reminding me of mindfulness. And I know you, you have some practice with that as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. Yeah. And, and I think that's the, one of the hardest things, and, and it's actually a big part of the healing from, um, from trauma actually is a lot of the practices that fit under the umbrella of mindfulness is that it's it's about self-awareness, you know, awareness of your, you know, obviously in the bigger picture, your symptoms, but then the more specific ones, like being able to be more mindful of your thoughts and what your thoughts are saying. And are they accurate thoughts? Are they balanced thoughts or are they distorted and basically causing you pain? Are you mindful of the things that you're avoiding, which is another one of the symptoms of trauma is that people with traumatic histories have a tendency to at first make very subtle, perhaps, um, you know, avoidance. And they're doing it for what seems like at the time functional reasons, like I'm avoiding that because it's so painful. But then after a while, the demands of that avoidance gets bigger and bigger and they're avoiding more and more and more. And then even things like being mindful of your emotions and what's triggering the emotions, and what you're doing about the emotions, and those kinds of things. And I think, too, like mindfulness, is it is wise, even with trauma, which is hard, and I get the difficulty of the work, it is important, which is you have to lean into those memories, you have to lean into those things to understand what you did with those memories that created perhaps some distortions, or some judgment, or some pain that isn't necessary to be bundled with the original trauma. Yeah. So let's go into the kind of the symptoms that we might recognize in ourselves. First, I just want to ask you one little lingering question that I'm having in my mind from a therapeutic standpoint. I know that there are these like phases to change Mm -hmm. and I wonder how much leaning into that model could be helpful for therapists, for knowing where your client is on that and for reducing some of that, yeah. Sure, yeah. Those stages of change largely came out of addiction psychology and you know, the, the psychology of addiction. And um, so, you know, the, it's pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation to action, action, and then maintenance. And then there's another one that's basically a relapse. But some people argue that is not a stage that is just a return to earlier stages. So it's not really its own separate stage. It's just some choices a person makes that throws them back into an earlier stage, not necessarily all the way to the beginning, but it could be any one of the other stages. And actually, it's interesting you bring that up because that is a framework that most of us are using, whether we're doing it more formally or informally, that we are looking at somebody's readiness because I think it's really hard. And I have people come in from time to time and they're here because their husband or wife wanted them to come in. Yeah. 
And then that's going to be one of the first things I assess is like, how ready are you to do this work? And I don't pull punches. It's hard work. And for some people, they aren't ready. And then really my job is to help them create some processes in their life that will mitigate further damage until they're ready. Oh, I love that. And so that's really what we, that's about as good as it gets. That's so honest. I love that. (laughs) Because some people can't, some people are just, you know, you need space. Anytime you're going to make a big change in your life, you need space for it. And quite frankly, in our absolutely crazy, wacky lives, sometimes there is no space. For all good thinking, we would love to be able to do this and this and this and this. But to get honest with ourselves and own the fact that there are times we have no space. Mm -hmm. So I I can't carve out magical fairy time, you know, for, uh, to, to get fixed myself in some way or another, if the time does not exist. And so I think what we end up having to do sometimes is go back to, and that the real problem is I need to start learning how to get my life maybe more organized in a way that would allow me to create some space. And that may be, you know, step one of the journey is that I have to, I have to get other things dialed in, in such a way as that then I can start really focusing on this work. The problem is, you know, and I think many listeners might be able to relate to this, right? If you try to make the change at that time of unreadiness, the change will likely not happen. And then you're creating a story in your mind that you failed. Yes. Right? Instead of being honest and stepping back and creating the right circumstances to be ready when it's, when (laughs) to make the change. Do you know what's really interesting is that's one of my favorite parts about the research on the stages of change is they did it. And it was actually related to a There was a study about dieting. And what they ended up finding out is for most of us, when we fail in our change process, is we blame it on the prep to action stage. That's where we blame it. So that's the third one. And so pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action. So what we think is I did not plan well enough. And so what will happen is, is it, let's say, you know, I plan this diet, I go on the diet, it fails miserably. And so then I go back to, you know, the planning stage. And then I, I spend even more time planning than I did the last time. And this cycle repeats itself. So every failure leads me to doing even more planning and more planning and more planning. But what we ended up discovering in this research is there is not a problem in planning. The problem is actually in contemplation because I didn't define the problem correctly. And that's the problem. Solving for the wrong problem. Yes. So if (laughs) if I don't define the problem right, then no matter what I do, that planning phase is going to go awry because I didn't even define it right. And so in the case of dieting, what they say is the main issue is, is that you're trying to solve too many problems because the average, I, I don't remember the exact number, but it was a big number. I remember thinking, gosh, that's a big number. The average dieter, I think, has to change something like, let's say, 27 separate things. And so what they tend to do in this dieting process is that they do all 27 at the same time. And so, yeah, of course, you're going to fail. That's way too many things to change at one time. I mean, can you imagine that? When you're defining the problem, you end up having to get into a little bit better into the weeds and you have to decide which of these 27 am I going to work on and change first? And then I'm going to go on and on and on. Interestingly enough, that's a little bit somewhat what we do with post-traumatic stress. 
is we do look at, in a sense, those 27 things or whatever, like we look at the symptoms and we're going to work on the big picture, but we're also going to get into those weeds too. I mean, that's just resonating so much um, with me. And, you know, I think there are some people in counseling professions that listen to this and it's just calling heavy. I mean, I say to lean into that from that perspective of like their potential secondary trauma and just to recognize where the client might be on that in those stages is going to be really helpful for not Mm -hmm. over trying and the burnout that that can happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious, uh, maybe you can help us with some of those um, symptoms that we might be experiencing or others are noticing in us if we do have Secondary trauma and vicarious trauma, are these the same things or should we not use them? Okay, we can use them interchangeably. Actually, it's pretty interchangeably. Secondary trauma has been more, slightly more in the research. And I think it's because it describes it a lot more, I think, fully, because it is like you're standing second, if you will, in that experience, as opposed to I'm being vicariously traumatized. Mm. I mean, which is, which is also true, but I think they've shifted somewhat, at least the last deep dive I did is that you, you saw more and more and more utilizing the term secondary trauma. And earlier in the process of the research on it, they would use the term vicarious, but they get used interchangeably. Okay, good. I wanted to ask you that. So what are some of the signs of secondary trauma? So just like with post-traumatic stress, you're going to break them down into four different clusters of symptoms. And for most of these clusters, you may only have one or two of the symptoms, but that's all you need to end up being given the diagnosis itself. And certainly with any mental health issue, it usually has to do with how much it is impacting your day-to-day life. You know, some people may have a symptom, but there really isn't any evidence it's really impacting their life in any way. So they would be considered either non diagnosable or that they have such a mild a mild um, manifestation of the disorder. So the first cluster we talk about is what we would call the intrusive symptoms. And those are things like, you know, some of the typical things you think about post-traumatic stress, which is like flashbacks or having bad dreams, like nightmares about the trauma or just nightmares in general that are very, very, very vivid and very disturbing. And then also Others are just maybe you're going grocery shopping and you're looking for pickles and all of a sudden a memory flashes into your brain. Those kinds of intrusive memories and intrusive experiences are really typical and are unnecessary. So you must have something in the intrusive category, something in each of the four. And also usually when you are exposed to something that is related to your trauma, you know, I live here in Las Vegas, Nevada. And for a lot of people, I worked with a lot of people after the mass shooting here at the, the country concert. Yeah. For a lot of them, they when they would drive down the freeway, which is R15, they could not look over at the strip. They couldn't look at Mandalay Bay because it was just too disturbing. And if they accidentally did, they would be dysregulated for perhaps several hours after that. So that would be an intrusive symptom. Yeah. And then also any kind of reaction to some kind of cue that might symbolize it or somebody bringing something up or somebody asking a question or somebody saying something. So those are all the intrusive symptoms. The second cluster are avoidance symptoms. Almost everyone with post-traumatic stress 
will come up with things that they will do to try to minimize the impact of usually the intrusive symptoms. So they'll start avoiding going certain places. They'll start avoiding certain people. They'll start avoiding topics of conversation. They'll avoid some TV shows. They'll avoid going to certain types of movies. I mean, they'll avoid things in an effort to minimize this reactivity piece. So, but then of course, what will end up happening is the avoidance itself creates more and more and more. It's like, it's a demand that just keeps demanding more. And so before you know it, I've had some people even who were, who couldn't even go to a grocery store. They just got to the point where they couldn't go anywhere. It would have been considered even agoraphobic. It was related to the post-traumatic stress. And then another, the other groups are negative alterations in cognitions and mood. And so what that really speaks to is sometimes most people will have some sort of negative belief. They're usually very exaggerated negative beliefs. They'll feel like a failure. They'll feel horrible amounts of guilt, perhaps that they didn't protect someone or that they weren't able to help someone. They will have emotional states that feel like they come out of the blue, particularly things like anger and guilt. They will also often experience what's called anhedonia, which is, and is, you know, the root word for without anhedonia, hedonism, without pleasure. So they're going to experience this sort of sense of blah, where things used to be bright and colorful and joyful and interesting and curious. And then they just really have very little emotional response to anything. And then for some people, they will start to feel detached from other people. And, and some will feel like they just don't experience any positive emotions at all anymore. And again, those are some of the ones that will sometimes happen very slowly and so you don't even realize when you cross that invisible line and you're just not feeling any joy at all anymore. And then the last group are, are arousal symptoms. And those are those ones like what we call hypervigilance, like people who have a hard time feeling relaxed in any setting that is unfamiliar or sometimes sadly even f somewhat familiar. An exaggerated startle reflex is really common for people who have trauma histories. And we'll talk about prodromal or subclinical symptoms too. They will have sometimes problems with concentrating very well. This is a category also that is sleep disturbance. The real interesting thing is most recently, and actually it's interesting, I'm doing a workshop this afternoon with a group of first responders about sleep. And what we know is that when we're treating PTS, we need to assess for sleep first and we need to treat the sleep disturbance first. Yes. If we don't treat the sleep, we aren't going to get anywhere. Yeah. I love that that's getting more out there. <laughs> yeah, because the sleep is how your brain heals. The sleep is how your brain consolidates memories and how it, it organizes information. And if you're not getting good sleep while you're doing this really, really hard work, you're not doing that other piece, which is I'm not going to be able to re-encode all of this information in a much healthier way. I'm just going to end up rejumbling it and it's all going to end up equally as distorted and problematic as before. So we always treat the sleep disturbance first. And so those are the four main groups. You will have a very small subset of people who will have some dissociative symptoms. Those are as prevalent as Sometimes I think in the movies want to depict, but you are going to assess for those as well, because there are going to be a certain amount of people who are very dissociative. In other words, they've discovered that just sort of 
almost checking out in a way, feeling globally numb, emotionally numb, physical numb, physically numb, not in interacting, not attached almost to other people is a way of coping with, with a life that feels so unsafe. Yeah. And so that is, there's different protocols and different work that has to be done with people who tend to dissociate. Okay. So that you, they're treated a bit differently. And I know you mentioned it in your book. I had someone on the podcast to talk about chronic pain, that sometimes there's like unexplicable pain or physical condition that just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that can be a sign. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because sometimes depending on the person and depending on the original trauma, especially if it involves pain, the original trauma for the person, if it was primary, um, if it involves pain sometimes, and then even for someone with secondary, secondary trauma, they may end up having so much empathy for that person at the time that they end up almost manifesting that same pain oh, in their own body. Yeah. And so that's sort of an indicator that they're holding on to that. Although that's not part of the criteria for, for post-traumatic stress, it's interesting how frequently those things will end up resolving. The other thing is I can't help but but believe is that because very often with with trauma is that you're you're really not paying attention to your body. So you're not reacting to your body in a way that would be optimizing you as far as like whatever your workouts or the way you sit or the you know, whatever, if your bed is uh, is really low quality or yeah, something and it's yeah. causing all this problem, you're just not paying attention until the pain is so acute that all of a sudden then, of course, it breaks through this sort of fog you're in. And I think sometimes the body just wants you to be paying attention and, and is trying to send up any alarm it possibly can to get you to do the work that it needs you to do. And so you're not paying attention because you're either... All that attention is on the hypervigilance of yep. the, you know, potential danger, or yes. you're so dissociated that, you know, there's no connection to that embodied feeling. So on either end, we can be really neglecting the body. Well, that speaks to a lot of the work that I do in helping people to, you know, get a little bit more embodied. And yeah, I wonder uh, now that we've gone through some of those symptoms, if you might speak to um, some of the different practices. So there's two ways I want to go. So you can tell me which way first. I mean, one is to protect ourselves against uh, secondary trauma. So before it happens, what are the things we can be doing? And then maybe what are some of the practices? And therapeutic models. I noticed from your book and your bio that you incorporate quite a number um, mm -hmm. from like CBT to ACT, I think, and mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So I'm really mm -hmm. curious you know, how you use an eclectic style, maybe, or if you're using certain things for certain people. I'm so, I'm very, very interested. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say my primary is CBT and my, and I guess I could say my secondary, secondary is EMDR, but EMDR is a CBT. Mm, so yeah. they're both CBTs. So they're both cognitive behavioral therapy. They're both, um, EMDR is working on all of the connections in a, in a different way, but we're really looking at the way the trauma was originally encoded because, you know, that's the interesting thing about trauma that is what therapies are looking at, which is trauma, unlike other things that happen to a person, like let's say, I don't know, let's say depression or anxiety or things like that. 
those are largely experienced in the big brain, you know, the the neocortex, the you know two sides that look like two sides of a walnut. But but trauma actually happens in the limbic system, which is like it's slightly smaller than my fist, but it fits up inside the two halves, and so it's a completely separate structure within the brain. And when you are traumatized, most of what you encode about the trauma is sensory and emotional. And that's about it. It's going to be little snippets of video. It's going to be maybe some smells if that was involved in your trauma. It might, it's a lot of snippets of auditory information. It could be some emotions you had at the time that get encoded. It could be random thought or two. You're not thinking a lot, especially if you're having a primary trauma. You're not thinking a lot. You're just doing, you're either, you know, it's fight, flight, or freeze, those kinds of things. You're you're trying to get safe. You're trying to make sure that you survive is really what that the mandate of that part of the brain. And so when you are working through any trauma in the weeks after a traumatic experience happens, you're basically uploading all of those little bits, you're sort of putting them together like a puzzle. It's the best analogy I can kind of give you. And But then what happens is the big brain turns on and starts in with some judgment. Like, oh, you could have said that better. Oh, you could have done that better. Or people are going to think this about you. Or this is what this means. Or this is what that means. And can't believe you didn't save that person. It's those kinds of narratives. Those are largely from the big brain, the Limbic system, again, if you survive something, it's basically going to give you two thumbs up and it's, it's you know, high five and it's moving on. Um, it's the big brain that starts in about what this means, what the trauma means and what the trauma means about you. Yeah. What it means about who you are now or who you aren't anymore, you know, depending on which way you kind of look at it. It also will start up a narrative about the world, you know, is the world safe? Are people terrible? I mean, those kinds of things. And so it's a dilemma because sometimes when all of that gets bundled, all of that traumatic content gets bundled, some things get put in there that we didn't really look closely at and we didn't notice really had some significant distortions in them. And then, but then we, we don't look at it, but the distortion continues to affect us. Yeah. And then the thoughts create the, the emotions become more extreme. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's, I'm sure you see it probably all the time in your practice where someone will say, oh, I'm not an athlete. I'm not. An, well, where did that come from? Who says they're not an athlete? Someone maybe in the past said something about their athletic ability or someone in the past made some kind of comment about it. And so they're using that as part of their belief system about themselves. And then that that dogs them the rest of their life. It, it prevents them from learning how to ride a bike or it prevents them from, you know, I don't know, going on a more physical vacation. So the same thing happens after a trauma is there all those little judgments and all of those little beliefs about who you are, what the world is, what other people are. Those things start to get more and more and more difficult, distorted, really unattended to in a way that causes problems. Because, I mean, you think about things like what the brain will tend to do. It'll say things to ourselves like, no one is trustworthy. Yeah. If I tell myself that and I tell myself that enough, yes, it's going to start affecting every single relationship I have with people. Yeah. Is that true? No one is trustworthy? 
No, there are people with various amounts of trustworthiness. But when we tell ourselves, no, I'm going to make my decision based on no. Then we start to look for evidence to prove Mm -hmm. that. And so. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm going to find reasons. And that's why you had things like social media, which can be sometimes a really big dilemma. As I, I often tell people in the aftermath, so, you know, kind of to answer a little bit about some of the things I suggest to people. One is, if you are vulnerable, if you've been just recently exposed to a trauma, really a significant trauma, you need to be fanatical about all of the things you can do to set yourself up for the best possible healing. One of those is, I mean, obviously, I'm going to go into teaching them really work hard not to judge yourself. So we're going to talk a lot about mindfulness of thinking and not judging yourself. But then also things like really making sure you really, really get good sleep. Get some movement in every day if you possibly can. Eat at regular intervals because if you've just been exposed to a really severe trauma, very often you're producing a bunch of really crappy chemicals which will surge on and off based on your thinking patterns about the trauma. And then your appetite gets really off. So you're going to want to make yourself eat at regular intervals and about the amount of food you would normally eat so that you don't end up. So you're signaling your brain all as well. Because I'm just like with an animal, with an animal, we always know our animals are like, oof, this isn't good. They stopped eating. Well, our brain is going to get that same messaging. If I stop eating, my brain's going to go, oh, crap, something's really wrong here. So we want to be giving this really sound messaging to our system. And then the last one I tell everybody is you need to pre-plan your social support network before you go through something difficult. Because if you're going through something difficult and you have some wonderful people in your life that you can tap into for support and you can tap into for normalization of the experience or any of that sort of thing, we end up really needing to make sure that we're taking the time to set ourselves up for this this really, really, really good experience with something very difficult, as opposed to I'm going to slog through it and I'm not going to make any effort to kind of attend to that. Like I'm going to yeah. pretend it didn't happen. I'm going to ignore it. And I don't, I think again, that's that leaning into it. And then as far as like things like the people in our life, but also the things we invite into our life, like social media and the news and things like that. I think when you're going through something really difficult, it would be a really good idea to take yourself out of that loop for a period of time. Don't expect your brain to have to work so hard. You want to be gentle with it and you want to let it get through this optimally as opposed to all of the overexposure. Like I always tell people who especially have gone through like like the critical incidents and, and they'll tell me about the critical incident and they'll say, let's say it's a very active one. I say, do not go on to the news and listen to that over and over again. You're not doing yourself any favors. Well, I was wondering if the way that the 24-hour news cycle is now and our ability to access so much violent images and videos through the social media, a person who's highly sensitive, could they get secondary trauma from that? You couldn't be diagnosed, generally speaking, because there is a criteria that it either has to be work-related. In other words, I can these can be strangers in my life. But it, because it's work-related and it's repetitive, I could end up with secondary trauma. But generally, otherwise, if it's a person who's experiencing secondary trauma, it has to be, you have to have some kind of emotional connection usually to the traumatized person somehow okay. or another. So there has to be some reason why this feels so personal to you. Now, that doesn't mean that 
if it has to do with things like generational trauma, that that actually could, by extension, apply potentially. I don't work in that area myself, but I would imagine it could certainly apply. Yeah. And and trauma, like race-based trauma, right? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. You know, if you're already getting the message and then you're seeing the image and then it looks like this is happening everywhere. I mean, I'm also thinking about the the school shootings. You know, they have very strongly impacted me, sometimes to the point of, uh, I'm not going to say secondary trauma, but I'm going to say, you know, thinking about it a lot, thinking about uh, if we should leave, you know, um, right. and feeling it, thinking about it, and then also having like feeling my heart rate go up, those right. things. Yeah. And those things are going to, which is what we know happens with a lot of kids too, and adults, which is it does increase an anxiety response. So people end up with a lot more anxiety around those things. And just as kind of a little neurobiology geekiness, um, if you're going to expose, yeah, if you're going to expose yourself to really difficult content, it's usually better in the morning when your brain is rested and fresh and then not the rest of the day. Oh, good to know. So, I love that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and it's only, yeah. And it's only because, but doesn't it make sense? Because you're going to, ha- your brain is going to be a lot more, just the same thing with why a lot of people will do a difficult workout earlier in the day because your body is more resilient from that very recent rest versus if you work out later on in the day, you know, like, you know, you might be a lot more tired than you realized and you might be more prone to injury. Well, the same thing applies to the brain. And I do think too, everybody, again, from that mindful perspective, we need to be able to check in with ourselves and decide all of it is poison. So how big of a dose of poison do you feel like you can afford and how often are you going to take the poison? Yeah. And that's really the way we all need to be looking at it because and really it is feel poison. It. Like when you're yes. looking at it, notice how your body is reacting, yes. you know, so that you know, <laughs> like this is what's happening. Yes. Is this a, like yeah. how much of this can my body take? Yep. And I actually, it's interesting. I block it during my work week. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I have an app on my phone that blocks everything during my work week because I'm already absorbing a lot during my work week. And the last thing I need to be doing is adding to that during the work week. So I don't. And so when I do check in on it, I will check in on on the weekends and I try to keep it to the mornings. I do all my difficult things in the morning. So I'm a morning person and I know that, you know, willpower and all these sort of things fade as the day goes on. So I t- I tackle all my more difficult things in the first half of the day and try to work with like those those natural rhythms. Yep, good for you. That works for me. I mean, it would be ideal if you could see your more challenging clients in the morning. I'm sure that it's hard to do your schedule that way. Yeah, and actually they do, especially too in as a we do know even like with things like willpower, it's kind of more like a muscle than it is. So we have to kind of know even when working out, when our muscles reach exhaustion, you don't want to really push it too far beyond that exhaustion thing because that's when injuries can end up happening. Yeah. Well, the same thing in a sense with willpower. Willpower is like a muscle. So we need to know when it's starting to get exhausted and then to not put it under that much pressure to perform when it really is already done. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah, such a good point. I heard you say before, it really uh, resonated with me, is about setting up your network and your life before, you know, like mm-hmm. not as much as we can for those who can, like, what can we do now instead of waiting till we're in that crisis? Did I hear you right with that? 
Yes. Yeah. And actually, I think, too, is like in a sense, it's be and, and obviously it's not unusual for when we pick somebody, they're picking us as well. But we will usually tell them, especially like this is what I'm going to need from you when I go through that. Yeah. Or if this X, Y or Z is going to happen. I had that. I That's what I did after you know my experience with the mass shooting and then the plane crash is I have a friend who also a therapist and I would tell her you need to if I go through something like that again and I did I said you need to call me and ask me have you slept yeah <laughs> and have you eaten today those were two of the questions she was assigned to ask me because those are usually my two biggest Achilles heels and if they both go awry then I really am not in good shape but so and then her job of course was to really give it to me, like to tell me, Trudy, you need to go get something to eat. Or she would actually one time, she was really funny. She had basically food sent to me. So it was like, you need to eat because it's just one of those things where you were going to be less likely to have the bandwidth to do something like that after we've hit a traumatic event. Yeah. It's hard to ask then. Yes. It's like, to me, it's like automobile insurance. It's like, yeah, I, I don't want to use it, but I'm really glad I have it. And same thing with this sort of thing is if I set up good social support network, I don't necessarily want to tap into it. That's not the point of it, but I'm going to be really glad I have it yeah. if I need it. No, it's such a good point, especially in this culture that we're in, which is very, you know, do it myself and independent. And, and then something happens that we can't do ourselves and we haven't really set ourselves up for just having people in our lives that can help us. So do it when things are going, you know, well (laughs) for later, you know, uh, speaking to that, I have quite a number of people in my life right now, Trudy, who are starting to caretake for their parents and some of them with kids, young kids. So they're in that kind of sandwich. Sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you have any advice that you can offer to them for self-care and not protecting against uh, potential trauma or, you know, stress response there. Yeah. And I think that's a tough one because we know there's actually quite a bit of research on that generation. And it's a, it's a really, really brutal situation. The main reason being like, like stressors that, that are unpredictable and that have no end are the hardest ones on us. If a stressor is predictable, like it has a pattern and it follows a pattern and I can I can understand the pattern, yeah. I can I come up with some processes to help myself through that. And if a and if a stressor has a distinct ending period, like I have to do this for two weeks or I have to do this for three months, then we can like, oh okay, cool, I can cope with that. It's when you don't know how long something is gonna last and it is unpredictable at the same time. And so, yeah, we we really need to tap into as much social support as we possibly can. One thing that's really important for that generation is to make sure that they're doing some type of self-care. A lot of times self-care feels self-indulgent. Yeah. But in reality, the self-care is makes you far more resilient. And it also is, it will aid you in getting through all of the other things. Self-care and the things that we sort of that big category of things we put in self-care are some of the few things we can do to really help mitigate stress so that we don't feel like we're going under. That and I think it's really important to be one or two steps ahead. So if I'm taking care of aging parents, 
I want to be, what's the next step? If this doesn't work, what's the next step? And if this doesn't work, what's the next step? So I already have some pre-planning in place, as painful as that would be. Because again, if I'm having to do that in that time, like let's say the parent falls and now they have to go to re- you know, like a, a rehab hospital yeah. or something like that. Now I don't even know anything about that. I haven't done any research. I'm completely behind the eight ball and I don't know what to do. So sometimes having those couple steps forward on things is really important. And if certainly if you have a bigger family and you can distribute some of the care and to get breaks and things like that, it's, it's so important. Two, I mean, you made a, a couple really excellent points there. I mean, the thing about, I, I've heard that before, that erratic, when we don't know when that's going to happen and when it's going to end, mm-hmm. they say with sleep, like they did those yep. tests, you know, if you just wake people up randomly, which is for another episode about that was uh, pregnancy and early, <laughs> early oh. days of, uh, yeah, oh, I felt like I was, in, I mean, that's what they do in a, in, for torture. Oh yes, they do. It's yes, a torture model. Do. So it's, uh, it did a lot to my brain. I'll say that. But the other thing about planning ahead, you know, I I really appreciate that you said that. And I hope my friends who are going through this, who are listening, really hear that because especially with deterioration of a parent, you know, it's also not necessarily like linear step by step. And sometimes something can happen quite quickly. And if you're already at the edge. Yep. It can send you over. Yeah. And it's a hard thing to do. And it sounds, sometimes people think, well, that's kind of creepy that I'm thinking about these kinds of things. Like she's going to be doing terrible. It isn't that way. It's the same thing as automobile insurance or homeowner's insurance. It's why we don't want there to be a flood or a catastrophic thing happen or a branch fall on my roof and I have to get my roof repaired. But I'm really glad I have it because I know exactly what to do. I know who to call. I know what's going to happen next. And that's kind of what I think is important for those folks to have like even to go to a, like, let's say an assisted living place and tour through it. So at least you have some familiarity of which ones are nearer your home. I think asking for help is very hard. And I, I've heard from a lot of folks who have people, their parents living with them is like, oh, no, 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 we don't want anybody coming into our home. And I feel like going, oh, but you could be so advantaged by working through those feelings and then having somebody who's like let's say a physical therapist, because that, that is something usually that is covered by insurance where a physical therapist could come into your home a few times a week, because that could actually add to the to the aging person's quality of life overall. You could have someone come in who is um, basically like a respite worker who can come in and help with some of the daily chores and things like that. And I think it's hard because if, especially if we're very, very private people and or that we have always been very independent, like you said, we have a great difficulty with asking for help. And there's some real interesting, fairly, um, I just heard it recently on a podcast myself. I love, I love listening to podcasts. And um, there was a researcher who was talking about help seeking behavior. And that interestingly enough, when we ask for help, we ourselves, our own narrative about asking for help is we're weak, we're pathetic, like what's wrong with us? Um, but when someone else asks us for help, we think, wow, they are so smart. <laughs> they are so together and they are so, you know, like, we have all these really good feelings about the person asking for help. So there's this strange disconnect between being a helper and asking for help. And so we we really need to be looking at that odd disconnect and learn to be better at asking for help because then, yeah, everybody thinks we're amazing. <laughs> and uh, 
which is, you know, and, but also I think it gives other people an opportunity for service, which is only going to end up helping, you know, their growth and yeah. their whole well-being because being helpful is such a good feeling. Yes. And a lot of times we don't let anybody help us. So nobody gets to have that good feeling. I always said, you know, when I was younger, it's like, it'd be sort of like, Everybody shows up with a casserole, but nobody wants to eat them. I mean, that would be so disappointing. (laughs) I love that. What a great image. Oh, that's really helpful, though. That's something that we can all relate to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, Trudy, I I took you uh, past the hour here. I feel like I've gotten such a, um, a deeper insight into secondary trauma, really what it looks like from different angles. And I really appreciate your time. Are there some final words that you'd want to leave our listeners with if they think they might have secondary trauma and um, and ways to find you, of course? Sure. And so I would say it's really important if you believe you have secondary trauma is to get assessed you know, by a professional and because you don't want to end up doing some self-diagnosis and then end up in some kind of internet rabbit hole trying to figure out like how to fix yourself. Um, to get and, and the other thing I always tell people when they're entering therapy, especially if you've never done it before, is it really has to do with the fit between you and the clinician. And so if you meet with somebody and you find that you just don't feel like this person gets you, move on because you're right. Yes. And so you just want to move on until you do find that really, really nice fit for yourself. Because what we know about that is if I feel like this person gets me and understands me, I'm going to end up really getting some much better care and much better help than if I stick with somebody just because they have some letters after their name that I just don't think gets me and I don't really think they like me. That's right. so we really want to make sure that we do that. And and I know it's hard to access care these days. We have an absolute critical shortage across the country for mental health workers. But I just say, you know, just keep trying. There's, they're out there. That is great advice. The therapeutic relationship being again and again studied as one of the most important elements to our healing. And how can folks find you? Um, I mean, I'm going to link everything in the show notes. And I spoke to it also in our intro. Yeah, usually the easiest way, I mean, you can access me through my website, which is NV, which is Nevada, State of Nevada, NV Psychotherapy Practice. Actually, it's nvpsychotherapy.com. And then also I have, and there's an email that links through that, but also you can always text me or call me or email me in my regular email, which is Trudy Gilbert um, at nvpsychotherapy.com. Oh, that's so generous. And everyone should run out also to get your book. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was fun to write. It was oddly enough, I never would have believed writing a book would be fun, but it was very fun. Share the title of of the book with us, Trudy. It's called Healing Secondary Trauma. Healing Secondary Trauma. Well, if you like this episode, get that book. Uh, Trudy goes a lot more in depth there than we could get to in this one hour. Thank you so much, Trudy. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're very, very welcome. It's It was my pleasure. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized. 
Someone else's land 